This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Postal Service, now a year into a 10-year reform plan, is showing some signs of recovery, thanks in part to the Postal Service Reform Act, signed into law recently. USPS is now focused on overhauling its facilities, but Postmaster General Louis DeJoy tells Federal News Network's Jory Heckman there's a long way to go. Jory joins me now with the highlights. And Jory, you spoke with Mr. DeJoy. What does he feel now about this reform plan so far? What he told me is that this plan is on track and that it is doing everything it needs to do at the conclusion of this plan for the Postal Service to break even, to dig out after a longstanding series of challenges financially, a broken business model, as he puts it. Two big things have happened recently. One, President Joe Biden signed the Postal Service Reform Act. This is the one legislative ask that the agency has as part of its reform plan. It's going to save USPS $107 billion, more than half of that now, the rest over the next 10 years. And the Postal Regulatory Commission has completed its 10-year rate review for USPS. And so it's now able to have more flexibility to charge higher prices. And it is. So those are the two big elements of the plan that were out of USPS hands. And the rest is now on the joy and the USPS board to make happen. The joy knows that some elements of the plan are controversial, but he says more tough decisions lie ahead. There's still a lot of uncomfortable things that we need to do. I'm pretty good at this stuff, but I'm not like a magician. And the team is pretty good, and we can't undo 14 years of colossal damage that was inflicted on the organization, both by I would say extreme resistance uh, that was out there in the, you know, by many stakeholders in terms of us changing and then just a lack of real fortitude to make the change, let's just say. And uh, so it's going to take us a number of years to uh, get through this. So of our toughest days, I would never say at this particular point in time, our trajectory is not where I want to say job done. All right. Again, that's Postmaster General Louis DeJoy speaking with our Jory Heckman. Did he talk about mail prices and why they have to go up again this summer? He did talk about that. He's aware that the agency at this point is is now charging higher rates for a slower standard of mail and rates are going up again. They are going up by about six and a half percent this summer. By July, the price of a first-class stamp will be $0.60. Before January 2019, it was $0.50. DeJoy says that much like so many things at USPS, the pricing model was an antiquated model and was not keeping up with the times, and says that a stark reality here is that first-class mail, its most profitable line of business, is declining. It's going to keep declining. We have had a monopoly that has been declining in value every year, becoming more of an obligation than actually a monopoly. You know, when you think of monopoly, it means you get to do most of what you want to do and you have enough, you know, who wants a monopoly that loses $10 billion a year? (laughs) Yeah, well, good question there. And what about the delivery fleet, Jory? Did he talk about that? Because that's controversial as to how many gas and non-gasoline-powered trucks they're going to have. Right. There's a lot of scrutiny from Congress and the administration on that. USPS recently doubled its initial order for electric vehicles. They're going to order 10,000 vehicles as part of its first purchase from its vendor Oshkosh Defense. This is out of 50,000 vehicles. DeJoy says he's not against electric vehicles, but more than anything else, he says that the current fleet is outdated. It's burning and breaking up every day, he says, and that at the end of the day, he needs vehicles that work. So he's going to commit to buying as many electric vehicles as he can afford, but the agency 
still has limited cash on hand, and there are a lot of capital investments the agency needs to make. It's committing to $8 billion in capital investments this year alone. All right. And the facilities are part of those capital investments. And I think a series of postmaster generals have been saying that the facilities they have don't match the future needs of the agency. What did DeJoy say about facilities, Jory? DeJoy says that facilities need to be more efficient. They need to be more attractive to employees. What we've also seen in the plan here is that USPS is calling for closing and consolidating 18 processing plants across the country, just recognizing that they are overhead that the agency doesn't need anymore, just given its current business and its current volume of mail. Here's more from DeJoy on the state of the facilities and where they need to be. We have a terrible operating environment. Our plants are old and dark, right? Our delivery units are old and dark and crowded and, and, and so forth. So we will make gains. But until I change the work environment, which is one of my next big missions, we're still going to have to deal with that. Who wants to come in and work there? And that's part of the problem we had with the, with the pandemic. Yeah, sounds like an Amazon warehouse without some of the charm. And what about the plans for election mail? You went over that with him also, too, Jory. Yeah, the Postal Service recently settled one of its many federal lawsuits about election mail back in 2020. The agreement is that it's going to preserve its extraordinary measures to deliver mail-in ballots and election mail to and from voters for future elections well into the future. We're talking 2028. DeJoy says the agency did settle this lawsuit, but that This is part and parcel of how the agency does business every election, that the extraordinary measures are here to stay. This is just how the agency is going to deliver mail for every election indefinitely. He also spoke about the budget request from the Biden administration. The administration wants to give USPS $5 billion for the next decade to improve infrastructure related to election mail. He says he's willing to hear more about this idea, but Currently, he doesn't see the need for the agency to spend that kind of money. All right. And what about the COVID tests that the Postal Service delivered apparently successfully? Did that come up? Yeah, this really animated him as part of this conversation here. This has been a big accomplishment. This speaks to his background as a logistics executive. This is something that he has gotten kudos from President Joe Biden for delivering more than 320 million of these tests so far. The way he sees it, there was this really golden opportunity While the agency was staffed up for the holiday peak season, there were all of these empty annexes, these warehouses basically strategically located across the country. And so he was able to turn those around quickly, make them into fulfillment centers. And from there, those are where the tests came in and came out and were distributed to households. We had thousands of truckloads of material and fulfillment. A rubber band that holds bubble wrap on top of the package is as important as the test kit itself to ship. Right. So inventory, you know, and all these different components had to come together to create the product that we were shipping out. You know what it's like to print five million labels in a day? <laughs> As you know, that's a that's a business in itself. I'm very, very proud of the team. I'm very, very proud of our partners, you know, being associated with our partners, the health, you know, HHS, the White House team, the COVID response team and and the Department of Defense, especially DLA, who was involved with it. And it was uh, something that went without a whole lot of critique, which is unusual these days, right? Mine arrived on time, rubber band and all. 
And what else did Mr. DeJoy say about future efficiencies, Jory? The way DeJoy sees it, there are ample opportunities for the agency to save. He says that the agency needs to get 35 to $40 billion of cost out of the agency over the next 10 years. And one example here is that he is gathering up all the agency's handbooks. There are about 900 in all. He says some of these haven't been updated in 40 years, that they teach employees how to do things wrong. And he says that the agency overall has got to be a more efficient operation for it to be a going concern for the years to come. Everywhere is different. There is not one thing consistent about operations. You know, through, you know, through, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Well, that brings that brings stress, stress to management, right? We haven't filled our supervisor ranks. We have to get our supervisors fully staffed and have the right workloads and the right training to uh, the most important position in the organization in terms of running the place. And all of that was uh, was nowhere. And we're working on all of that. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. What did he seem like otherwise? Any final comments, Jory? You know, he has a lot of lines of effort here going on, but he has been able to prioritize them. I think we've seen a lot of thoughts here on the facilities. Other than that, he's also really looking forward to the agency standing up this data dashboard that is required under the legislation that we talked about. He says that the Postal Service probably has more data than most agencies and that they're able to put that to better use to make customers more aware of how things are going. All right. If you love the Postal Service, write somebody a letter and mail it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect 
as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.